You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. Okay, this episode is brought to you by Mitchell's Nutrition and Bliss Probiotics. Two really cool companies making awesome products that I use and I'm really stoked that they have jumped on board to support the podcast. So first up, let's chat about Mitchell's. These guys make an incredible bone broth protein powder. It's a protein powder that I use pretty much every single day. It's a very high quality protein powder. It's you know got a full amino acid profile. It tastes absolutely delicious. It doesn't taste like bone broth. Um, it tastes like a vanilla milkshake. That's the vanilla one that I have. If you're interested to learn more about this, then check the show notes where you can find the links to Mitchell's. Secondly, let's chat about Bliss. Bliss probiotics make a lozenge that goes in your mouth that is probiotic. And this is to support your microbiome in your mouth and your throat, which is of course the gateway to your body. So it's a very effective way to support your immune system. All of their products are based on science. They make them in Dunedin. I've been using these products for a number of years. I recommend them very highly. And so if you're interested to learn more, have a look at the show notes and check the links there. And now let's get into the podcast. G'day, welcome to the podcast. Buckle yourself in, actually, because this was a really good podcast. There's so much really awesome information in here. My guest today was Dr. Mary Party. Now, Dr. Mary is a naturopathic doctor, and she's an integrative gut health specialist, whilst also being so knowledgeable in so many areas of holistic health. It was kind of, well, I feel like I could have talked to her on many different aspects. But anyway, today we really unpack the gut and gut health. We covered things like fasting, stress, antibiotics, and how these things affect our microbiome. And we also discuss issues like bloating and skin conditions and a number of other things that are caused by imbalances in our gut microbiome. And then we'd look at some potential treatments of how we might look to address these issues. This podcast was just like absolutely packed with so many cool tips and tricks and great bits of information that I loved it. And I'm sure you will too. So let's get into it. Mary, the first question that I really want to know is what is the most interesting or even the weirdest thing that you've ever done for your health? <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> I've done a lot of weird things for my health. The two that come to mind that are in my area of expertise are going to be number one are coffee enemas, which I don't recommend for everybody for sure, but they can be helpful when somebody has chronic constipation, which is how I actually got into my field as I've, you know, dealt with IBS my most of my life. And so for that, it was actually really helpful for me. But um, the caveat of work with a practitioner, you know, you can do the wrong thing with coffee enemas, but that's a, that's a weird one, you know, doing some coffee in the enema form. Usually you're drinking it. That is a bit weird. It's, um, you know, we actually share that same practice. I have... Uh, oh, wonderful. I know. I know. I'm glad that we could bond over this. Yeah, I've, I've got a little a self-administered little coffee enema kit that I have. I mean, I haven't done it that recently, but I, I used to do it a couple of times, maybe like once a month, a few years back. Why did you do coffee enemas? Yeah, good question. Because yeah, a lot of people will do them for like detox reasons. I haven't seen great research for that. What I did them for was stimulating the colon. And so caffeine stimulates the colon. We know that. Like if you're a caffeine drinker, um, you may notice that you go to the bathroom right after you have a cup of coffee or soon after. 
And so it helps to stimulate the colon. And obviously, if you put it in rectally, then you're getting it right to the colon versus waiting. And it can be irritating, which is the caveat. So you can do it too much for sure. You can do too much of it volume-wise or too frequently. Um, But it really helps to stimulate the colon. And I almost give it the analogy of like, it's like a workout for your colon. And so it can help contract the colon if it's not used to contracting, which can be the case in idiopathic chronic constipation, where it's just kind of like a lack of movement that's happening there. When I use them with patients or, or myself, it's like, okay, we do them a little bit more regularly in the beginning, and then you start to taper off of it and see if your body can do it on its own. So you never want to become reliant on that either. But that's really the reason that I did it personally. Mm, I think I was kind of like thinking I was doing it for like a detox, kind of like cleaning myself out. But that's interesting that, so you don't really think that it's, it has much benefit from a detox perspective? I honestly think if you're going to the bathroom regularly um, and you're drinking water and you're eating a whole foods diet, I don't think that you need something like that to clean you out. I don't see like a benefit from it, honestly. And, and there can be harm. So you could irritate the colon too, just with the, the acidity of the coffee. So I don't recommend it for the general population. No, fair enough. I'm glad that we started this conversation talking about butt coffees, though. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> that's I feel great. like our next podcast should probably be mid-coffee enema. <laughs> oh, God, I wouldn't put anyone <laughs> through that. Um, <laughs> Mary, what's um, – I, I really love to just sort of like paint a picture of what we're talking about when we're talking about gut and the gut health. Can you give us a brief overview of the anatomy of the gut and the GI tract? Sure. Yeah. So when we talk about the gut, like gut isn't technically anything, but we're talking about the entire GI tract, usually when we use the term gut health. And the GI tract is from the mouth is the first part of the GI tract all the way down to the anus. And it's a hollow tube. So that's something that most people don't know is that your GI tract is this hollow tube. Like if you think of the analogy of a a roll of paper towels where you have the cardboard insert that goes through the middle of it, that's your GI tract, which you can technically touch the whole way down. Ours is just so many feet long that you can't physically touch it. Um, But it's an interface that our body has between the inside of our body and the outside of our body, much like our skin. And so that's really important because it's one of the first places that we will come in contact with the outside world. And so we see that in terms of food starts in the mouth and then goes down to the esophagus, um, then hits the stomach. And that's where we have all the stomach acid production to start to break down our food. Um, And then it goes into the intestines, small intestine first, then large intestine um, next. But this is all going to be just communication between the inside of our body and the outside of our body. So food will eventually be broken down into smaller particles like amino acids and sugars and and smaller fat particles. Um, And then those get absorbed over the intestinal wall. I think that's really important just because if we start to view the gut as a barrier system, much like our skin, then it makes more sense why most of our immune cells are located around the gut because it has to have protection against the outside environment to keep us safe. That's the basic anatomy of the gut, but you're looking at a really, really long hollow tube from the mouth all the way down to the lower part of um, the colon into the anus and really is going to be the main site for digesting and absorbing your food. Um, It's also the house or like the place that we keep majority of our microbiome. So we have 
our intestinal microbiome that resides mostly in the large intestines. There's some in the small intestines as well. And that's the collection of, you know, over 100 trillion microorganisms that live there. So over three pounds of bacteria are in your GI tract. And this is a really important part of the microbiome or important part of gut health is that it is the source for that microbiome. We have microbiome on our skin. We have it in our nose, our sinuses. Um, women have it vaginally as well. The biggest reservoir is really going to be the GI microbiome. And these little guys um, have a symbiotic relationship with us. And so the answer to the first question of the weirdest health thing that I've ever done, you know, the coffee enema, I was going to say the weirdest health thing that I may do in the future is looking at helminthic therapy which we can talk about a little bit, but I haven't done it yet. What is that? Yeah, helmins are worms. And so, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of helminths. Some are parasitic, meaning they cause harm to us. And, you know, you see those in tropical regions where people can get um, inflammation of the lymphatic system with them. Um, some of them are commensals, meaning like they benefit from us, but we don't really get much from them at all, but they don't harm us either. And then we also have helminths that are um, mutualistic, or we have a symbiotic relationship with them, meaning that they benefit from us and we benefit from them. And so those are going to be species like Nicator americanus is a mutualistic where it benefits us and we benefit it by providing it a home. And so all of these microorganisms, they help us. They help us survive, whether they're bacteria or fungi or viruses or helminths. They really help to make different products within us and then transport those products to different areas of the body. So one example is like butyric acid, butyrate is produced by the gut microbiome and some species produce more than, than others. Um, but butyric acid can cross over the intestinal wall into our general circulation and can help regulate inflammation in the body. There's also some metabolic end products of microbes that can help regulate neuroinflammation, so inflammation in the brain or metabolism in the liver, all coming from the gut microbiome. And so it's a really interesting relationship we have, but it's one that we both benefit from it. So these microbes get a place to live, they get food to eat, which is, you know, the scraps that we don't eat. And we benefit from these mutualistic bacteria and helminths in that they give us all of these products that help us live healthier, better lives. Right. So you're talking about like as a health practice that you'd potentially do in the future, like you would purposefully then ingest some of this bacteria with the notion that it's going to be beneficial to you to like, say, if you wanted to reduce inflammation, you'd have that specific bacteria in you that's going to help to reduce inflammation. Is that what you mean? Yeah, so helminthic therapy is an interest to me because I work with a lot of patients with inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, and Crohn's disease. And in IBD, we, we see an imbalance in the immune system where there's this hyperactive immune system that it's actually starting to attack itself um, and increase inflammation that's there, um, similar to an autoimmune condition, things like multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis, um, where there's this immune system that's too active. It's actually attacking us now. And so some people believe that, you know, autoimmunity may be in part the fact of like a deficiency of helminths or other mutualistic bacteria or, or worms. And the reason behind that is the idea of the hygiene hypothesis in, in some part where we were designed to be around bacteria. We were designed to be around viruses, around protozoa even, around helminths. 
That's because our immune system wants to attack something. And so it wants to have a job. And so one of the ideas is that is the body getting too bored and there's not enough things for the immune system to do? So then it becomes it starts to attack itself. Whereas if we gave it more things to interact with, like a rich, diverse microbiome, um, maybe even mutualistic helmets that benefit us and we benefit them, that we would reduce this autoimmune process, this hypervigilance of the autoimmune system or the immune system to make things more regulated. And what we see with certain helmets that are mutualistic um, like Nicator americanus, is a balancing of the T1 and T2 branches of the immune system and an increase in the T regulatory cells, which are like the police cells. They're the ones that are like, yes, go, no, don't go. They kind of regulate the immune system. And when we support the T regulatory cells, autoimmunity usually improves. And so that's kind of the mechanism between Nicator americanus. And the reason I would do it is that I rarely suggest things to my patients that I haven't done already with the exception of, you know, pharmaceuticals that just aren't for me, like it wouldn't be appropriate for me to take. Um, But if there's things that I think that would be safe for me to do, and if I'm going to suggest it to a patient, I usually try it myself so I can talk about the process with somebody, but it's still one that I'm, I'm debating. I'm not totally sold on it myself. So I want to do some more research first. That sounds like a very exciting. Is that still quite new, that line of therapy? Yeah, well, helminthic therapy has been around for a while. There's some really good research studies on it, and then there's some that are mixed. The issue is is that there's very little funding for helminthic therapy because you're not going to patent a helminth. It's a living organism. And so the trials have been too small, and most of them have been too short in my mind. So they're, they're looking at 12 weeks and points. And a lot of these things you want to look at six months down the road because it takes a while for them to inoculate and really talk to your immune system. Um, So the research just hasn't been good quality yet. So we need some more studies on it. Mm. I feel like that's often the way with uh, the more natural type therapies and medicines where there's not huge money to be made from pharmaceuticals that they tend to take a while to get the funding and get the research behind them. Yeah, absolutely. But we believe, I mean, most non-human primates have mutualistic helminths that are naturally occurring within them. Most animals have mutualistic helminths that that occur within them. Sometimes they'll get parasitic ones, right? But helminths are very, very common in nature. And it wasn't until the mid-20th century where anti-helminthic Um, medications came in, like dewormers, where we were deworming a lot of the third world countries. And some people saw a trend of like, okay, we reduced the amount of helminths and infections that were there, but did rates of autoimmunity increase after that? And so that's something that some people have proposed as a mechanism as, okay, one thing got better, but we created this whole other problem. Hello, jumping in again, um, just a little moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Mitchell's Nutrition, and specifically their bone broth protein powder. Because if you want to up your protein intake, you want to nourish your gut and support your skin, muscles and joints in one easy and delicious protein powder, I reckon this is probably the one for you. Mitchell's Nutrition was born out of a search for ways to support the body's natural healing abilities and optimize daily performance. Their mission is to elevate the standard of mental and physical well-being of Kiwis so that they can keep doing the things they love for as long as possible. 
Their bone broth protein powder is dairy-free, gluten-free, legume and grain-free, low in sugar, and boasts a 100% natural occurring full amino acid profile. It's seriously a very high quality protein powder and I absolutely love it. Using a traditional slow cooking technique to extract the goodness from 100% grass-fed New Zealand beef bones before stirring in some natural flavor and monk fruit. That is all it is, there's nothing else, and I love that Mitchell's Nutrition has a very, uh, a very high commitment to their transparency. What you see is what you get. Now, being the first of its kind here in New Zealand, being a bone broth protein powder, you might be wondering what the taste is like, and I've gotta say, it's the best tasting protein powder I've ever tasted. I have the vanilla one every day, and it tastes like a vanilla milkshake, without a word of a lie. So, if you're interested to learn more, check the show notes. Now back to the podcast. When it comes to gut health, what are some signs that someone has poor gut health? Equally, what are some signs that someone has good gut health? So for your gut health, you really want to see like how you feel. So bowel movements are the easiest way to talk about gut health because it's our output of the GI system. Um, but are you having daily formed bowel movements that are the appropriate color and length? And so for color, you're looking for a brown color. They can vary in shades of color, but you don't want yellow stool, which is one option that some people can have. You don't want red stool. You don't want blood in the stool in general. You don't want black stools. Those are all things that you should talk to your doctor about. You don't want white stools, which can happen like a clay colored stool can indicate something is going on with the biliary system, um, gallbladder, pancreas. And in terms of length, you, we want to make sure, okay, you're going to the bathroom every day, but are you going to the bathroom like the size of a quarter or more? And so you want to make sure like your stools are about the length in total throughout the day from your wrist to your elbow. And that's total and that's going to be on average per day. So a little bit less one day, a little bit more one day. Um, and it's going to be a direct reflection about how much food and fiber you're eating. And so, you know, I'll see women usually a lot of the times where they're like, no, I'm going like a quarter of that every day. And then I'll say, how much are you eating? And they're not eating anything. So if you're not eating, you're not going to have large bowel movements um, because it's going to be directly related to how much food goes in. And how does fiber play a part in this? Yeah, so fiber is the main fuel source for your gut microbiome. So all those bacteria really feed off of the fibers that our human cells can't digest. And so we have a few different types of fiber, but basically they're all going to stay intact through the GI system. And in the colon, the bacteria will start to break those down and the bacteria will produce things like butyrate from that. And that butyrate is going to be anti-inflammatory to the gut, but also to other areas of the body. And you'll also produce other short-chain fatty acids, things like acetate, propionate, um, that have other health-related benefits to the rest of the body too. Fiber is really the main source of the bulking of the stool that happens so that you can have well-formed bowel movements that aren't too hard, they're not too soft, but they kind of keep everything together and make you regular too. So fiber is one of the things that I think we're really deficient on as, as humans. And so I usually recommend people consume six to nine cups of vegetables per day, most of that being non-starchy vegetables. Sometimes we'll be adding fiber into the diet with fiber supplements too, just to get people to that level, especially when they're having GI discomfort. We talked about like 
good gut health versus bad gut health. And, and one of the things is bloating is one of the most common things I see where the bowel movements are normal, but somebody's really distended or they're having, they're passing gas a lot of the time, just uncomfortable, or, you know, they wake up with a flat stomach, but by the end of the day, they're really bloated and don't feel well. Um, that's a telltale sign that something's going on with your gut health. Reflux is another sign where you're having things actually go up versus down. Um, so these are all things that we want to look at. And then one of the biggest ones with gut health is your appetite. You know, are you hungry? If you've lost your appetite, then we really want to look to see like, why are things not moving through the stomach? Why are you not hungry? Um, your appetite is a sign of vitality. You want to be hungry. Yeah, that's interesting. I wanted to ask you actually about bloating just because I had a few people ask me about this. So they wanted me to ask you this question. So I think it's very common. So what exactly causes bloating and are there some like common treatments or cures for it or is it very individual? Yes, it's probably the most common thing that I see patients for. They come into my office for bloating. So it's a really widespread problem. And there's not one cause for it. So a lot of different things can cause bloating. The biggest thing that we see causing bloating is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or IBS or a combination of those two things. But small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is when you have an increase in bacteria in the small intestines where most of the bacteria should be residing in the large intestine. And when you have an overgrowth of bacteria in the intestines, they can produce different gases. And so our human cells don't produce gas. The gases that we are producing come from our bacteria. So our bacteria can produce hydrogen and they can produce methane and they can produce hydrogen sulfide gases. And when we have too many bacteria that produce these certain gases, we can get bloating, gas, distension that happen. And so we really will look at, okay, does somebody have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth as their cause for bloating? And if they do, then you want to treat that. So you treat SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth with antibiotics or antimicrobial herbs, things like oregano, berberine can be really helpful in treating SIBO. Um, but you can also get bloating if something is going on with your pancreas. Um, so you want to look at pancreatic health. You know, are you producing normal amounts of pancreatic enzymes? Um, is there fat in the stool? Is something going on with the gallbladder in that manner? Are we talking about bloating in terms of gas? Or are we talking about bloating in terms of water retention? That's a really hard distinction to make for some people when they're like, I just feel bloated. I'm like, well, is it more that you're retaining water or is there actual gas in your intestines? Because those are going to be two very different things as well. But this is really where, you know, ideally you work with a practitioner so they can tell, okay, this is where the bloating is coming from. So this is how we're going to treat it. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but there are th some things that you can start with at home too, to just see if they improve it as well. Let's dive into that now then. Like what are some things that you can do at home? Yeah. So what I recommend, like if you are noticing that you're gassier than usual or that's bothering you, what I would recommend is starting with diet. So there's some things diet wise that can really help with gut health in general, as well as bloating. Um, the biggest one surprises a lot of people, but it's, it's making sure that you have four hours between your meals. So not snacking all day long, but having discrete meals and having four hours between them at least. And the reason that four hours is like that magic number is because you have a process that happens in your intestines called the migrating motor complex, the MMC. And this takes at least an hour and a half to three hours to be triggered 
when you're not eating at all. So you have to be fasting to trigger this migrating motor complex. And when you're fasted and you trigger the migrating motor complex, it initiates a physiological response that helps to move contents through the intestines. So it's like the way we sweep out our intestines throughout the day is through this migrating motor complex that kind of pushes everything down. And that's why if you wake up and you have breakfast and then a couple hours later you have a snack and then a few hours after that you have lunch then you have a mid-afternoon snack and then you have dinner, if you never go more than an hour or so without eating, you're never going to trigger this migrating motor complex and things are going to start to sit in the intestines and ferment. And that fermentation process is where we get this overgrowth of gases that can happen and bloating. And so really just separating those meals and not eating anything in between them except for drinking water um, could really drastically help with bloating. So some people, that's all they need to do, and then their bloating is gone. What about drinking things like coffee or tea in between as well? Yeah, as long as it doesn't have any calories in it, you're good. So if you did coffee with cream, that would stop the migrating motor complex. If you have an herbal tea without sweetener, totally fine. I actually suggest that as a treatment for bloating. And one of my favorite treatments for bloating is either peppermint or ginger tea. And you can get more specific with that. So if you are more constipation prone, so your gut is slower, you're having less bowel movements, then choose ginger because ginger will help with bloating, but also will help speed up the gut. And then if it's the other way where you're more prone to diarrhea, then choosing peppermint, which is an antispasmodic, helps kind of slow things down and reduces bloating is a great option for you too. Okay, cool. So we've got the four-hour fasting window, I guess. What else is there? The other thing is um, removing some foods that you might not think of. So nuts, nuts and nut butters are pretty notorious for causing bloating. Um, and they're health foods, right? So, it's, you know, they're paleo, they're like, they're keto, like everybody's on the nut train because of that. But they can cause worsening constipation and worsening bloating. And so I'll have people get rid of all nuts, nut butters for 30 days, see if it improves their symptoms. If not, put them back in because they have other benefits for you as well. One of my favorite things for people that are more constipation prone, where things are a little bit harder, moving slower, eating two kiwis per day. So there was a research study where they gave people two kiwis per day and it drastically improved symptoms of constipation. And I, I say that because if you're constipated, you're much more likely to be bloated because everything's moving slower. So sometimes you just need to fix the constipation to fix the bloating. Um, so that's an easy one too. And then fiber. So fiber is like a double-edged sword, meaning that if you're eating a ton of fiber, it can actually be causing bloating and gas. Um, and people know that if they've eaten a lot of beans or anything, you know, that will just cause gas. But if you can regulate your bowels, so you're having daily formed bowel movements with fiber, then it can help bloating. And so I tell people, slowly increase the amount of vegetables you're consuming over a period of time. Don't just go from, okay, I was eating one cup of vegetables, now I'm going to eat seven tomorrow. Like, that's not going to feel good. And then you can also use fiber supplements if you need to, but go slowly. And don't be discouraged if it causes bloating in the beginning. Just stick with it and be patient with it. And then fermented foods. So fermented foods by far have like some of the best research from them. Stanford, a big medical institution in the U.S., came out with a study that looked at 
consuming fermented foods daily, um, and it reduces over 19 inflammatory cytokines in the body. And so I'll have people do at least one serving of fermented foods per day. That's like things like sauerkraut, kimchi, natto, anything that you like that's fermented can really help to balance um, and increase microbial diversity, which is like the number of species of the gut, as well as reducing inflammation. So on that, with the um, fermented foods, like, do you want to have a broad spectrum of different fermented foods to try and get different types of bacteria in you? Or like, or is it as simple as like, yep, just have sauerkraut with every meal? Can you have too much fermented food? What do you recommend? In general, with gut health, diversity is king. Whether it's with fermented foods or just foods in general, you want to be rotating everything because you're going to get different benefits from all the different foods. And so this is where like the age old saying of eat the rainbow really comes into like a scientific place where it's like if you are eating a diet that has all the different colors in it, yellow, green, blue, purples, um, you're likely eating a range of different fibers, um, but you're also feeding a range of different bacteria there. And so we know that diversity of the diet is one of the best things you can do for the diversity of your gut microbiome. And it's the same thing with fermented foods too. So ideally you're rotating them. I used to say that everybody should be dairy-free, and I don't say that anymore just because I don't think the research proves that at this point. And so kefir is one of my favorite fermented foods. That's a great one to add in. There's different yogurts that are fermented, but really rotating them because you're going to get different species with each different fermented food. Now, just going back to the bloating and, um, and everything else, what about flatulence? Like how many times should we be farting a day? Or, you know, like I remember hearing a, a fact well, I, I say fact in inverted commas. I remember hearing someone say that we should all be farting 15 times a day. That's normal. Is it? Yeah. No, great question. And this gets brought up a lot in the functional medicine world because in functional medicine, for some reason, people think like we should have no symptoms as humans. And that's just not the case. It's not human to have no symptoms. And so the person was right. So in conventional gastroenterology, we say between 10 and 20 times per day of passing gas is normal. I err on the side closer to the 10, I think 20, like if you think about it, that's, that's getting up there per day. But anything within that range is technically normal. And so to, to realize that too, that this is just a human experience, we're not different than any other animal in terms of like, yeah, we will pass gas and we'll have other symptoms that will come and go. And, and some of that is just normal. Now, one question that I really want to know the answer to is how does fasting impact your gut um, mm. and your gut health? Like, I mean, I'm coming from a place where I've done some experimenting with longer fast. The longest I've done is a, a seven day water fast. I've done a couple of five day fasts and I've done numerous sort of two-day fasts. I also practice, well, used to practice for a number of, number of years, intermittent fasting. So not eating from about 8 p.m. at night till about midday the next day. So can you talk about how each of these different like lengths of fasting impact your gut? Yeah. Yeah. We haven't done too many studies on these things. So we don't know extensively about fasting, but we do know from Ramadan studies. So they've done some studies on people that are practicing Ramadan, which is um, a religious holiday that's looking at more intermittent fasting. You know, they're going long periods of time not eating and then they're eating again. So it mimics an intermittent fasting 
um, schedule. And so in those individuals, what they saw was pretty interesting. It was substantial remodeling of the microbiome. And so we saw different species kind of either increase or decrease. And what they found was upregulation of butyric acid producing um, species, which is a really health promoting type of bacteria. Butyric acid or butyrate is the one that I've referred to before, but it helps to reduce inflammation. It's the main fuel source for our colon cells. And so that looks like a really promising thing where, you know, intermittent fasting may actually help improve the gut microbiome. And so I think that's something that we need to look more into, but it looks promising. And I think we need to make sure that we're doing this at an individual level. You know, I work with some women who are underweight and they aren't having a period. In those people, intermittent fasting or fasting in general would be more detrimental to their health than health promoting. And so if you're trying to gain weight, you know, fasting is not the option for you. If you're somebody who is a very healthy weight, has a good relationship with food, um, and you're just looking for longevity, then yeah, fasting or intermittent fasting on occasion is likely going to be health promoting for you. So it's really dependent on the individual, where they're at and what their goals are. Alrighty, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, Bliss Probiotics is one of our sponsors for this episode, so I thought I'd just let you know a little bit more about what they do, who they are, and and why I think they're so good. So Bliss Probiotics, they help to support your immune system. They're unlike most probiotics that target the gut. Bliss Probiotics specifically target the mouth and the throat, which is, you know, that's essentially, it's the gateway to your body. So they stop the bad bacteria up in the mouth and throat before it gets a chance to get inside you and start making you sick because there are so many things that make you sick these days. There's so many illnesses, there's so many viruses, it's been a long winter. And so I'm always interested to find different ways in which I can help keep myself and my family well. And Bliss Probiotics is one of the things that we do. We take lozenges every day as a preventative measure to support our immunity, keep ourselves healthy. Because at the end of the day, who wants to be sick? I know I don't want to be sick and I don't want a sick family. I don't want sick kids. We just take, uh, take one lozenge a day They taste delicious. My son loves them. He's always asking for his lozenge in the morning. So take Bliss Probiotics to increase your good bacteria in your mouth and your throat, maintain good health, and protect your family against chills and colds. I also love that they're backed by science and made locally in Dunedin. So if you're interested to learn more, check out the show notes for a direct link to their website, and you can have a look for yourself and learn more and see how you can get yourself some if you're interested. And now, back to the chat. In my head, this is based on zero knowledge, and um, <laughs> but in my head, I've got this thing where I, I think of doing, say, like a, a two-day fast as a reset for the gut. Like it'll decrease some non-beneficial bacteria and help to promote some beneficial bacteria, and then and then I'm like, well, then I'll start to kind of repopulate it with some things like bone broth for some collagen and some you know a range of probiotic foods. Is this something that makes sense to you? Like, is this what you'd recommend or is this just a stupid idea that I've got? No, it's it's definitely not a stupid idea. Um, we've used fasting in medicine for thousands of years. So not conventional medicine, but when you look at Ayurveda and like some of the oldest forms of medicine, fasting has always been around, especially if you have a stomach ache. You know, if you think about it, if we had no access to imaging, um, like CTs or ultrasounds, and somebody had a stomach ache, it would make a lot of sense for you to say, okay, let's try not eating anything because you don't want to put anything in if you're having trouble digesting it. And so I think that fasting is, is definitely an ancestral practice that we can tap into more. 
the issue that comes about, and if my patients are listening to this, they'll be like, well, why hasn't she recommended fasting to me? Um, is that in ancestral medicine, usually people would report suggesting fasting when they would also suggest meditation, relaxation, rest. And so fasting usually goes along with those things. If you're fasting and you're also working 80 or 90 hours a week, it's too much stress overall on the body in my mind. So, you know, if you have the right atmosphere for it and environment, then I think it can promote really good gut health. But I also think it could be detrimental depending on the person and, and what environment they're already in. You know, the gold standard treatment for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is actually an elemental diet where they're just drinking a solution that has all the amino acids and nutrients they need, doesn't have any fiber in it. And so that's almost like a form of fasting where it's like a liquid diet for a week or two. And that, that has the best efficacy for treating small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We don't suggest it to many patients because there's a lot of people that have a history of eating disorders, disordered eating, a poor relationship with food. And fasting is going to amplify that in a lot of people. And so, yeah, I think you're 100% on in terms of fasting can be a reset for the gut. It just doesn't work for everybody. Mm. And I think that's so important what you said about, you know, because fasting itself, it does put stress on your body. And so if you then include the normal stress that you we all are exposed to every day, then you're right. That could be far too much stress and it could have a negative effect on everyone. Does that kind of play into the gut-brain connection? And what exactly is the gut-brain connection? Yeah, yeah, we, we use that term a lot, but what does it mean? It means that there's several ways that the gut and the brain connect to each other. And so one of the ways is the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is one of the nerves that comes out of the brainstem, but it innervates virtually the entire GI system from the mouth to the lower part of the colon. And it helps with regulating motility as well as the secretion of different enzymes and stomach acid. Um, it's really the cornerstone to our gut health in terms of the nervous system and the connection to the brain. Um, you also can have communication from the gut to the brain through the nervous system, through the nerve fibers that end in the gut. And so what I mean when I say that is that the bacteria that are in the intestines, if they are producing certain molecules, then those molecules can interact with the nerve fibers that are in the gut and travel up to the brain to send messages there. So that's another way that the gut-brain connection happens. And then lastly, we also have the gut-brain connection through the microbiome itself. And so when the microbiome produces molecules, those molecules go travel through the bloodstream and some of them can pass through the blood-brain barrier and actually reduce neuroinflammation in the brain or increase it depending on what kind of bacteria were in the gut in the first place. And so this connection between the gut and the brain is how these two systems communicate. And this is why when we talk about irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, we're always talking about the gut-brain connection because if you have anxiety or depression or you're under a lot of stress, that can directly affect your gut health. It can cause diarrhea, constipation, bloating. And then the opposite is also true. If you have poor gut health, it may be exacerbating anxiety, depression, or any of the other neurological symptoms you're experiencing. And so I always try to tell people this is bi-directional. It's not one way or the other. If you get rid of 
all of your gut symptoms, like if you get rid of constipation, it does not mean you're going to abolish anxiety. And the opposite is also true. If you completely solve anxiety, you still may have gut symptoms because it's a cross communication between the two. You have to address both at the same time. Wow. So when you're, when you're like sort of prescribing some treatments for people, do you also look at that emotional stress, psychological aspect of it and look to get the, your patients to implement some techniques like meditation and things like that? Absolutely. I think it's one of the biggest things that I talk about, honestly, with patients because it's, it's one of the harder ones to change. But if you are in a state of constant hypervigilance um, where the nervous system is on guard, um, kind of scanning for threats or feeling like you're in this fight or flight response all the time or that you're under chronic stress, um, then you're not going to be able to heal your gut. And I've seen that time and time again is that we have to treat anxiety and stress and depression in order to treat the gut. And the opposite is true too. So we treat both at the same time. If I'm putting somebody through a treatment for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, I'm also going to be suggesting, you know, talk therapy or somatic therapy, meditation, breath work, whatever is going to work for that person to really downregulate that nervous system and allow their body to feel safe again. Um, This is really when we can be in that parasympathetic state of rest and digest so that the vagus nerve is firing correctly and the the gut is working correctly. I feel like with gut health, it seems like it's just so much guesswork. Where do you start with someone if they, they have some sort of something wrong with their gut? At what point should they look to do some sort of testing or, you know, like stool samples or try like eliminating foods out of their diet? Like, how does this all play out? You know, I tell people if you're eating a really clean diet and, you know, you're doing the four hours between meals and you, you're already meditating and doing all those things and you're still having gut symptoms, then I'd work with a practitioner. Because um, like you said, it's going to be a lot of guesswork if you're just trying to see what works for you. And you're probably going to waste more money in the long run, just trying different things. And so we really like taking people through a series of comprehensive assessments and, and asking them a lot of different questions and seeing like, where is this actually coming from? So there's a lot of testing that you can do. We do stool testing to see if there's high levels of fat in the stool that would indicate like a gallbladder or pancreatic issue. Um, we're going to look at breath tests for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's different questionnaires for fungal overgrowth you can go through with patients differentiating what the cause is, is going to really speed up the the treatment process. And what about eliminating foods from your diet? Because I feel like this is also, there's so much guesswork because the feedback loop takes so long. If you remove a food from your diet, you may not know how that, the removal of that food has affected you for like days or weeks. And so it's kind of like hard to really track if it's been beneficial or not. Really hard. Yeah, it's tough. It's what makes it more difficult because you're looking at delayed hypersensitivity reactions, not allergies or anaphylactic reactions. Um, And so we do recommend an elimination diet for our patients. 30 days, we take out a bunch of different foods, things like nuts, try to reduce raw vegetables and only go to more cooked vegetables, which are easier to digest. Um, We take out gluten, we take out dairy, we take out eggs, corn, sugar, sodas, you know, carbonated beverages. Um, So we take out these things for 30 days, see how the gut responds to it. Some people will say, I don't have any gut issues anymore. And we're like, okay, great. We know it's one of the things that you took out. And so now the process is reintroduction. And that's essential. You don't want to take out like eggs and like 
things that are good for your health and have a restrictive diet for the rest of your life. You want to make sure you add them back in. And so the reintroduction is the harder part, but you're slowly going to reintroduce um, new foods every three to seven days. And so sometimes we'll have to go slower. Sometimes you can tell within three days um, and see which are those are, are exacerbating your symptoms. What about the connection between your skin health and your gut health? You know, like how much of a part does your gut health play in things like dermatitis and psoriasis and eczema? Yeah, yeah, we're still looking into that, but um, it's really interesting. We've seen some probiotics help with atopic dermatitis, things like eczema, which suggests that there is a gut-skin interaction in that. And so we don't know the answer for sure, but my guess is that it's a part of it. And so our microbiome affects every single organ system. To what degree, we're not sure yet. But the first step is like eating a really clean diet and supporting your gut microbiome through fermented foods, um, rotating your vegetables, all the things that we've talked about today. I can send your, your audience to a link to our food strategy guide, which is just general gut wellness, like what that would look like on a plate is something that I've created for people. Um, and that's a great place to start, especially if you have eczema or dermatitis. A lot of people with eczema will realize that if they take out certain foods in their diet or if they eat really clean, their skin will improve. So there is some sort of link that's going on there. Yeah, so we'll see, you know, the microbiome has exploded in research over the last 10 years and we're just at the start of it, which is even more exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting. Okay. So say someone has some, one of these skin issues, then you suggest maybe removing some of these foods and again, that sort of 30 days period to see if it improves. Exactly. Yeah. I recommend a 30 day elimination diet for a lot of different things and, and eczema would be one of them, but taking out things like dairy, corn, gluten, as well as any sugar in general. If they have gut symptoms, we'll take out nuts as well. Coffee, alcohol are big ones to take out no matter what is going on. And take them out for 30 days and see how you do. And then you can gradually reintroduce them if needed. Say you've got a child that doesn't really like eating fermented foods or you're just a person that doesn't like eating fermented foods. Can you just supplement with probiotics and prebiotics? And also, what are prebiotics and how do they differ from probiotics? So prebiotics are the food source for the bacteria. So it's not the bacteria itself. A probiotic is the bacteria itself. And so there, there are different things like fiber is a prebiotic um, versus lactobacillus is a probiotic. They're not the same thing. And if you don't like fermented foods, hide it in things. You know, if you're doing like yogurt, adding some fruit to it for kids, same with kefir, you could kind of blend it with some different fruits so it has a little fruitier taste. If you don't like sauerkraut, you could also do, you can drink the juice of the sauerkraut, just kind of take it as a shot really quick and you'll still get the benefits of it that way. Okay. What about smoothies? I think, you know, a lot of people are eating, having a lot of smoothies these days. How does that impact our digestion? Because obviously blending it up in a blender is kind of like bypassing a lot of our mastication, chewing in our mouth, and it's going down into our stomachs already obliterated. How does that impact our gut health? Yeah, a couple of things to think about with, with smoothies is that you're not chewing, like you said, and chewing is one of the main sources um, in terms of digestion for serotonin production. So when we chew our food, we're producing serotonin. And so I usually tell people, if you're going to drink a smoothie, chew it. 
So, you know, do you take a sip and then you just chew as if you were chewing food to get that serotonin production, which can be really helpful. And it can make it feel like more of a satiating meal too. The other part is that when people have gut issues, eating more like smoothies, pureed foods, mushy foods is usually beneficial because they're taking out that mechanical digestion process that needs to happen. And a lot of us aren't chewing our food as well as we should be anyways. And so drinking a smoothie can be easier. You just want to sip it slowly usually versus like chug it, which can be a little bit too much for the system at once. Um, But I'm a big fan of smoothies for that reason. Um, You just want to make sure you slowly take it in, chew it, try to get that serotonin production. And then you want to graduate from smoothies. So you don't want to be on a liquid diet for your whole life. You want to be reintroducing fibers and whole foods because those have a whole other range of benefits for you. Mm. What about antibiotics? How bad are antibiotics for our gut health? Antibiotics directly kill the bacteria in our intestines. And depending on which ones they were, they'll they'll be more or less. But broad spectrum antibiotics can really wipe things out down there. That's why, you know, antibiotic exposure is one of the risk factors for C. diff infections and overgrowth of bad bacteria. And the analogy is like if you have a forest, this ecosystem that's rich in all these different species of birds and monkeys and cats and insects and everything, and then you go and deforest the whole forest. You cut down all the trees. You wipe everything out. What can happen there is that you can get an overgrowth of opportunistic weeds and insects and animals, um, things that grow really fast in that environment. And then you can get this monopoly that happens where the ecosystem is not balanced anymore. You have this overgrowth of certain species, certain plants, and this complete lack of other plants. And that same exact thing can happen in our intestines. So if we take a broad spectrum antibiotic, especially multiple over the course of our lives or close to each other or for a long duration, like if you're on doxycycline or tetracycline for a month or longer, that's really where we see the disruption of the gut microbiome where we're wiping everything out and then these opportunistic bacteria will pop up and overgrow and we have this real imbalance in the microbial diversity. So there's not an evenness of the diversity becomes very imbalanced. And so antibiotics are also necessary and they save our lives. And so when somebody has an infection that they need an antibiotic, I always tell them, you need to take it. This is why we have antibiotics. You don't want to end up dead with a good microbial diversity because then your microbial diversity does nothing for you. And so we just want to use them sparingly. And so my whole thing is that we overprescribe antibiotics incredibly in medicine, where we're treating viral infections with antibiotics, you know, rhinosinusitis or, you know, a runny nose or something like that. We want to wait those things out unless your doctor's like, no, this is absolutely necessary. Then you take the antibiotic and you don't think about it and you eat a bunch of fermented foods and you increase the fiber in your food and and everything is fine. But we don't want to overprescribe is the big issue. Yeah. So, okay. So let's say someone has needed antibiotics. And so now you're looking at like, okay, well, I had to take the antibiotics. Unfortunately, I've, you know, wiped out my microbiome, but hey, look, clean slate. Let's just rebuild. How would someone go about rebuilding their microbiome? Like, is it just fermented foods? Are there other things that they should be eating? Do you have like a protocol that you would recommend? That's the gist of it is that you want to really increase your fermented foods 
One thing I'd tell people is go to the farmer's market every week and choose a new vegetable that you haven't consumed before. And so rotating different types of vegetables, different types of meat, even in the diet, you want to change things because you want to be feeding different species of the bacteria. The other important thing is polyphenols. So polyphenols are these um, nutrients, these antioxidants we have in food, and it's what makes foods different colors. So there's different polyphenols that can make food red or pink or purple. And those are a different food source for your gut microbes. So your gut microbes eat fiber, but they also eat polyphenols. And so this is why on our food strategy guide, we say add herbs and spices liberally to food because herbs and spices are one of the densest source of polyphenols that we have in our diet. Things like um, ginger, chives, cilantro, basil, parsley. These have really high levels of polyphenols in it that actually feed your gut microbes. But just eating a whole foods diet, like shocker, like low in sugar, low in no alcohol, it's all going to help you build back a, a good, healthy microbiome. There's also like certain bacterial strains and probiotics that you can use either during antibiotics or after antibiotics to help support the microbial diversity. Um, gyro EPS is one that I have suggested for patients before, but just really supporting that growth process. The body is so resilient. And so really just trusting in your body's innate ability to retain and go back to homeostasis is really important. Mm. Touching on supplements that you just uh, mentioned there, like are there any supplements that you do recommend for people in general? In terms of general health and wellness, um, a multivitamin is a good idea for most people. If you're eating a diet that's really rich in fruits, vegetables, and good lean quality meats, then you shouldn't need a multivitamin. Fish oil has some of the best research in it for reducing the risk for cardiovascular disease. EPA specifically has been shown to reduce um, rates of depression and, and improve mood as well. So that's one that I recommend for a lot of people. Um, I personally take lion's mane extract because of the heresinones that are in it and erisinones that can help reduce the risk for dementia later on in life, which I have a family history of. So that's on my personal list. Resveratrol is, was on my list and now like the research is kind of mixed on it. So it's not as exciting to me anymore. Sleep, if you could put sleep in a supplement, you would make billions of dollars because you can't mimic the effects that that has on your body. Um, and then joy. So I know it's not a supplement, but the happiest people in my practice are the healthiest people. The health does increase happiness, right? Because it's, it's hard to be happy if you're really, really sick. But the opposite is also true, that if you have a lot of joy and, you know, just feelings of, of happiness in your life, then your immune system is going to function better. Your gut's going to function better. Everything downstream. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's beautiful. And I think that's probably a great place to leave this. I know that you have um, a patient to get to and uh, I really appreciate your time today. And sorry that I was just kind of firing questions at you, but I just wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to find out so much stuff. So thank you so much, Mary. Um, if people want to track you down, follow you on social media, how can they do that? Yeah. So my Instagram handle is at dr.maryparty. I post a ton of gut related and also longevity content on my Instagram. My practice's Instagram is at modernmed.com. It's M-O-D-R-N-M-E-D.com is obviously the website, not the Instagram handle. 
And, and yeah, that's our website. So if you're looking for a complimentary phone consult, we offer those to patients. Um, if you're not sure if we're a good fit for you, we're happy to jump on a Zoom or a phone call with you first. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you, Art. This is fun. Yeah, it was really cool. And uh, yeah, maybe we can have a chat another time because you're just so, you have so much knowledge in so many different aspects of health. So I'm sure we could cover a bunch of different things. I would love that. Let's do it. All right. Until next time. See ya. See ya. Bye. Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum, tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. It really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye. Bye.